Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 22 tonight. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hands and the ushers will bring a Bible to you so that you can follow along in our Bible study. Now, our study tonight by the Motion Picture Association of America is rated R. (laughs) So you've been warned. But it's God's word, and so uh, we go through it from Genesis to Revelation. Thank God he is so kind that he put everything in one study, and you'll, you'll soon know exactly what I'm talking about. The word Deuteronomy means second law, and that is what the book of Deuteronomy is. It is the second giving of the law. God gave the people the law through the person of Moses from Mount Sinai, and it's recorded there in Exodus chapter 20. God then continued to give Moses the law throughout the following months as they were encamped there, and it's recorded in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But one month before Moses goes to heaven, he gathers all the people together, and he preaches to them a series of sermons wherein he gives to them the law the second time, but this time in much simpler terms. It's not given to the priests like it is, you know, formerly, but rather it's given to the people so that they would understand and and know what it is that God requires of them. And that is what the book of Deuteronomy is. It's the last words of Moses, and it's the second giving of the law. Now, you know, if you've been following with us in this study, that there are three sermons given by Moses that make up the entirety of this book. However, removing the barriers of those sermons for one minute, I want to say that the content or the substance of the book basically breaks down into three segments. The first 11 chapters, and if you've been with us, you know this, this is review. The first 11 chapters, he gives them virtually no law. For 11 chapters, he basically says to them, if you obey the Lord, you're going to do well. And if you disobey the Lord, you're not going to do well. And in various ways, he says that over and over and over again for 11 chapters of Deuteronomy. Once we get to chapter 27, he's going to do that again. So chapters 27 all the way to 34, the end of the book, he's going to do that again. What that means is this, that the middle part, chapters 12 through 26, the part that we're in right now, is really the heart and soul of the book. This is what it is that they were to obey. These are the laws, the things, the precepts, the judgments, the statutes that the Lord delivered to the people that they might walk in his ways and be obedient to his word. Now, granted, for you and I that are here tonight, we are partakers of a different covenant. We're not under the law. The blessing of God that's upon our lives is not contingent upon our ability to do and to keep the things that we're reading here in Deuteronomy. We're part of the new covenant. And our relationship with God is based upon the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed upon the cross. And the work that brings us into that relationship with God has already been accomplished. It's paid for. It's done. However, there is much for us to glean and to gain by going through and studying these things. 
Because although it's a different covenant, it's the same God. And as we see these things, we gain wisdom for our lives and we understand what the will of the Lord is and we find that there's much practical application for the New Testament Christian. Amen? So as we come to chapter 22 now, we're in the central part of the substance of this book as he gives to them the precepts, the judgments, the statutes that they are to obey. And he covers much ground, many topics, many themes as we move through these next couple of chapters. So if you're there, chapter 22, verse 1, we read. He says, Thou shalt not see thy brother's ox or his sheep go astray, And hide thyself from them. Thou shalt in any case bring them again unto thy brother. And if thy brother be not nigh unto thee, or if you know him not, you don't know him, then you shall bring it unto thine own house, and it shall be with thee until thy brother seek after it. And you shall restore it to him again. In like manner shall you do with his donkey, and so shall you do with his raiment, And with his all lost things of thy brothers, which he has lost, and you have found, shall you do likewise, you shall not hide yourself. You shall not see thy brother's donkey or his ox fall down by the way and hide thyself from them. You shall surely help him to lift them up again. And so he talks to them here about what you're to do if you happen to see something that your brother has lost or if his donkey or his cow walks, wanders off and you happen to see it. He says, this is what you're to do. You're not to keep it. You're not to hide yourself. You're not to pretend that you don't know what's going on or you're not even to just ignore it and allow the thing to continue to wander. But you're to go to the effort, go through the effort of restoring those things unto your brother. And the whole point of Moses saying it is that it's going to require some effort. Now, we can all relate to this in some degree, you know, as, as things like this happen in our own lives. You know, we, we borrow a tool from our neighbor, you know, and, and we see it laying there on the workbench. And we think, oh, yeah, I got to get that back to him. And then a month goes by or, you know, or something kind of a thing. And it's a, just a practical thing that God's saying, no, 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 get it back to them. And if they've lost something, make sure that you return it. However, there is also a spiritual application to this. There's something that God would have us to consider, not as it relates to our neighbor's things or his tools or his animals, but rather to his soul. See, in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says something. He gives us a key to unlocking a whole bunch of scripture in Deuteronomy. Listen to what Paul says as he writes to the church in Corinth. It's chapter 9, uh, verse 7. He, he says, who goes to warfare anytime at his own charges, at his own wages? Or who plants a vineyard and eats not the fruit thereof? Or who feeds a flock and eats not the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man? Or saith not the law the same thing also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox, the mouth of the ox, that treads out the corn. Now, does God take care for oxen? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer he's leading us to is no. God doesn't care about oxen. 
And then he goes on, verse 10. Or saith he it altogether for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. That he that plows should plow in hope, and he that threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Now, the context of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is not the ox context of what we're looking at back in Deuteronomy, but the idea, what he's getting at here, is that when God says these things about an ox or about a donkey, it's not about the ox or the donkey that God wants us to consider. You say, well, then what does this have to do with? What is the spiritual application of this? The Bible tells us that we are the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. That we call him Abba, Father. We've been given the spirit of adoption. We call him Daddy. Now, if we have been adopted and we are the sons and daughters of God, then that makes Jesus not only our high priest, not only our bride, not only our friend, but it makes him our brother. And so what would God have us to hear? What would he have us to glean to understand from this? Listen, if you see your brother's ox not not his cow but if you see your brother jesus if you see his servant and he's gone astray if you see a servant of your brother and he's gone astray he's wandered off he's not in the fold that he's supposed to be in he's not walking in the place where he's supposed to be walking and you see him what moses is saying to us what the spirit of god would have us to consider don't hide yourself Don't pretend you don't see it. Don't pretend you don't know. But put forth the effort to restore to your brother, Jesus, the servant that has gone astray. What do you mean? Here's what I mean. Is that if you see someone that's astray from the Lord, if you know of someone in your life, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, someone maybe that was in church with you at one point, but now they're out there in the world, and you still have access to their life, and you can speak into their life, then you're to put forth every effort to bring them back to your brother, to Jesus. You're not to hide yourself. Notice again in verse 4 what Moses says there. He says, uh, you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down, slide back, fall into a pit, a trap, by the way, and hide yourself from them. But you shall surely help him, listen to the language, to lift them up again. So the Lord would have us to consider. Perhaps you know someone, perhaps you know several people that aren't walking with the Lord the way that they should. The Lord would use you and I to speak into their lives, to bring them back into that relationship with him, that they not be trapped in the pit or separated from the Lord, but that they be in the place where they can reach their full potential in the things of God. So he tells us to speak into their life. Now, In verses 5 all the way through the end of the chapter, he gives to us a bunch of laws that have to do with the preservation of various things. God's into preserving things. And the first thing here, and notice in verse 5, it says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now, he does not define in this verse what is woman's clothing or what is man's clothing. 
I don't think they had pants and skirts in the days that Moses wrote this kind of thing. So there is no definition of what exactly is the clothing. And I don't think that the clothing is the point of where he's going. Here it is what it is. And here's, if you're taking notes, these are the things that he's speaking to us concerning what we're to preserve. And that is this, first of all, is the distinction between the sexes and their respective roles. That God is interested in preserving the distinction between the sexes and their respective role. The Bible tells us that when God made man, he made them male and female. He didn't have to do that, but he did it by design. He did it on purpose, and he made there to be a distinction between men and women. Now, God also made the family. The institution of family is the invention of God. It's his idea. He made it. And paramount to the success and the thriving of the institution of family is the embracing of the roles of both the man and the woman. And when you blur the lines of distinction between the roles that God has given to the, to the sexes, between the men and the women, what you do is you begin to erode the strength of what the family was designed to be. And once you erode the strength of what the family is designed to be and you destroy what the family is designed to be, then you have destroyed something that is absolutely irreplaceable. There is no institution of men There is no bureaucracy. There is no government program. There is nothing that could ever be done, conjured, or paid for in the mind of man that can replace what God made the family unit to be and to do. You can't do it. And God's the one that made it, and there's no replacement for it. Now, what we see in our society is that those lines, regardless of clothing and articles of dress, those lines have long been obliterated. And they cease to exist. And we've seen the, the demise of the family because of it. And we've watched what's happened to society because of the erosion of what God intended the family to be. I, I saw this. Perhaps you saw it too. I would say I printed it up, but I didn't. I wrote it down. You might have seen this article this week. Let me read you this segment of it. It's, it says, we have to break through our private idea that kids belong to their parents. Or kids belong to their families, says Melissa Harris-Perry, MSNBC host and professor of political science at Tulane University, where she is the founding director of the Anna Julia Cooper Project on Gender, Race, and Politics in the South. Kids belong to whole communities, she insists. And once we realize this, we'll make better investments in government indoctrination of children. In other words... We don't need families. We need to get our kids together in public places, in public institutions, where we can give them collectivist ideas. And that that's what our kids need more. No, 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 no. This is what your kids need more than anything else. They need a properly functioning family unit by the institution and ordination of God. And the heart behind God saying what he says here in verse 5 concerning the woman not wearing that which pertains to the man and vice versa is all about the preservation of the sexes and their respective roles as ordained by God. And He calls you and I to embrace what it is that we have been given as men and as women. 
And he's interested in preserving those things. He goes on in verse 6 and he says, If a bird's nest chance to be before thee in the way or in any tree or on the ground, whether they be young ones or eggs, and the dam, that's the mom, sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young, but you shall in any wise let the mother go and shall take the young to thee that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest prolong thy days. This is talking about the preservation of life. If you're out and you see this scene, perhaps you see a chicken, you know, and you see a couple of Cornish hens freshly hatched there in the nest. He says, look, if you want the Cornish hens, have at it, but leave the mom. Why? Because the mom's going to have more Cornish hens. And why are you going to cut off the fountain? It would be the same thing if you're out in the field and you see there an apple tree and you think, man, I like apples and I want to have a lot of apples. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut down the apple tree and I'm going to put it in my garage. And I'll have unlimited apples. That's foolish because you can't eat the apples fast enough and then the tree can't produce more. And so God says, look, don't be greedy. Take the, take the babies, leave the mom. It's about the preservation of life. Verse 8. He says, when you build a new house, then you shall make a battlement for thy roof, a fence, a gate, a barrier, a wall. That you may not bring blood upon thine house if any man fall from thence. Now, in that region of the world, the housetops were flat. And that's where your porch, your patio would be, where you'd barbecue and hang out and catch some rays and relax. You know, that's where you would do it. And he tells them the most obvious thing that you could ever imagine. Listen, put a fence. Put a fence around. Now you say, now why would Moses even have to say it? Because wouldn't you think it would be obvious that that's what you would do? I mean, there's going to be kids up there. Now, some people need it, yes. But I think that there's something maybe a little bit deeper. Again, a spiritual application that the Lord would have us to see. Here it is, dads. This is for you. Is that when you build a new house, and when the Bible talks about us building our houses, it's not talking about two-by-fours and mortar. It's talking about your family. It's talking about your kids. It's talking about the next generation that's coming up after you. It's important for you dads to set boundaries, even in a place where it seems obvious that it doesn't need to be established. I don't need to put a fence there. They know not to play near the edge. I don't need to put a gate by the fireplace or the wood stove. They can feel the heat that's coming. No, 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 dads. You need to take your kids and explain to them and draw the boundaries of what is right and what is wrong, which is the way that we go and which ways that we do not go, and not to assume anything to be common sense. Take the time to do your diligence, dad and mom, to instruct your kids, to lead them forward. So the the preservation of safety. Then he goes on in verses 9 through 11 to talk about the preservation of purity and order. Notice verse 9. He says, you shall not sow thy vineyard with diverse seeds, lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. It means in the same yoke, put the two different animals. And you shall not wear a garment of diverse sorts as of wool and linen together. No polyester, cotton, uh, you, you know, nylon mixes, you know, that kind of a thing. Now, you say, well, what's the big deal here? I don't, again, think that the clothing, the threads, the materials, or the seeds, or the animals, I don't think that's 
such a big deal. It was. This was law. They were to do these things. But it points us to two things. It points to us, first of all, that God is a God of order. That he likes things in their proper place. And he likes things to be pure, not mixed up. But again, the Apostle Paul takes this concept, this principle, and he applies it to our lives in a spiritual way and helps us to understand what God was getting at. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writes again to the Corinthians, he says this, he says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? In other words, we're not to be yoked like you would yoke two animals together to plow your field. We're not to be yoked together, a believer, with a non-believer. In other words, we're not to be plowing lines, building life together with someone who is not of the same fiber, of the same mentality, made up of the same fiber, you know, whatever, if you would. We're not to do that. And we've all heard this, if you've been in the church for any length of time, that a believer is not to marry an unbeliever. You're not to mix up the two things. Because, you know, and we don't, this isn't a study on marriage, but we understand the consequences of when those types of things happen, when, when you mix up a believer and a non-believer. But it goes so much further than that in the concept and what it is that God would have us to understand. It's not just about marriage, but it also has to do with behavior. What sense does it make for someone who's a Christian, who's a child of light, who's a son or daughter of the Most High God, who's called to live to a higher standard and called to walk the narrow path? What sense does it make for us to walk the narrow path at certain portions of our life, but then at other times to walk on the wide path that leads to destruction? To give ourselves to godliness and holiness in some areas, some parts of the week, but then to live like heathens the other parts of the week. It's sowing with diverse seeds. It's, it's weaving op- opposing fibers together. It's, it's plowing with unmatched animals. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work, see. It also talks about ideology, mixing ideologies. Well, I take a little bit of Jesus, and I take a little bit of Eastern mysticism, and I take a little bit of, you know, philosophy and i just kind of blend it together and and i sew this garment of diverse colors and and i have the spiritual tapestry of all these different things that i've kind of gleaned through all the different things i've been exposed to and read and been educated in you're not to do that if you're a follower of the true and the living god then you're to build with weave into the fibers of your life draw lines in your field with that which is true and enduring and lasting and proven the word of God. And you're not to sow with diverse types of things. He's a God of order and he's a God of purity. Of keeping things to be what they are. That we don't mix it up. And so he tells them that here in these verses. Then in verse 12 back in chapter 22 of Deuteronomy. Um, he talks to them about preserving your spiritual identity. Notice verse 12. He says you shall not make the fringe. Or you shall rather. Make thee fringes upon the four quarters of thy vesture, wherewith thou coverest thyself. Now, this was something that the Jewish men would do cons- always. It was, it, they do it even to this day, is that they would have blue tassels that would hang down on the four corners of, of their robes. And what they were to do, the reason that they would do that, was to be a reminder to them, first of all, of who they were, 
and also of where they were going. It was to stand out. There was something distinct in their appearance that would be always a reminder that they're the people of God. The reason why they were blue is because blue was the color of heaven. And that's where they were headed. And so a reminder of who they were and where they were going. And it would be with them always on their garment. We see that Jesus was a practicer of this. It was this border of the garment, the fringes that were touched by the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. When she was healed, remember Jesus said, I I feel as though virtue has gone out of me. Someone has touched me. It was the border, the fringes of the garment. It was what Jesus had on, on it. And even if you see Jews, even to this day, they still do it. You can pull them out of a crowd in New York City or wherever you might be because you'll see hanging down from the corner of their, you know, their waist, they, they have the tassels, these fringes, these things that Moses, it's a, it's a, it's a mark of identity. We aren't called as New Testament Christians to put blue fringes upon our garments to be a reminder of who we are and where we're going. However, I will say this. There should be in your life identifiable characteristics that people can see that would point to the fact that you are not of this world. That there's something about you that's different. That there's a distinction in your behavior. A distinction in your demeanor. A distinction in the way that you deal with people. And that when they look at your life, they can see that there's something different about you and that you are not of this world. And we should always have with us the hope of where we're headed. That it's not about this life or this world, but that you and I, we are headed for heaven. Who we are and where we're going. It should be identifiable by those in the outside. Not by what we wear. Not by tassels. But by truth. By our behavior. By who we are. The light that's in us. And so the preservation of our spiritual identity. Now in verses 13 all the way through 30, we begin the R-rated portion of our Bible study as he gets into now laws concerning sexual purity. And the first part of this, uh, from verse 13 all the way to verse 21, it concerns the preservation of marriage and family. And notice with me in verse 13. He says, If any man take a wife and go in unto her, And then hate her and give occasions of speech against her and bring up an evil name upon her and say, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found her not a maid, not a virgin. I took this woman, but she's impure. She's been with someone else. She's not a virgin. Then, verse 15, shall the father of the damsel and her mother Take and bring forth the tokens or the proof of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city in the gate. And the damsel's father shall say unto the elders, I gave my daughter unto this man to wife, and he hates her. And lo, he hath given occasion of speech against her, saying, I found not thy daughter a virgin. And yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Now, this was a common practice in that day in in some Middle Eastern cultures, even to this day. Is that when the marriage between a young man and a young woman would be consummated, the sheets from their bed on their honeymoon night would be taken. 
and there would be a little bit of blood on the sheets, and those were the tokens or the sign that the woman was actually a virgin on their wedding night. And then that sheet would be taken and given to the father of the bride for this very purpose. And it would be proof to her father that she was pure, that he gave away a maid. And it would forever be for him proof in case this husband, this man was a louse. And he was looking for some cheap grounds of divorce to get out of the marriage that he wouldn't be able to make this kind of an accusation, but that he would have legal proof that the woman was a virgin and it would take away the man's grounds for divorce. Now watch this. Verse 18, it says, and then the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him. And they shall immerse him in a hundred shekels of silver. He gets fined a hundred pieces of silver if he does this. And then give them unto the father of the bride, because he has brought up an evil name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall uh, be his wife. He may not put her away all his days. After that, he cannot divorce her. No matter what happens in the marriage, he is bound to keep her for the rest of his days. Now, he better get a dog to taste his food. (laughs) (laughs) Because probably the woman doesn't want to be with him anymore, but he can't divorce her all the days of his life. But then again in verse 20, he goes on, but he says, but if this thing be true and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house and the men of the city shall stone her with stones that she die. Because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house, so shall you put away evil from among you. Now, listen to the practicality behind God's wisdom in having this policy, this law, and giving it to his people. The first thing that it would do is that it would take away a man's cause for divorce. He he would not be able to leave his wife and bring upon her just this accusation so that he could then go and marry someone else it would take away his ability to do that and that was the only grounds for divorce in this society was fornication or adultery and if it could be proven that she was a virgin then it would eliminate his grounds for divorce thereby preserving marriage also at the same time it would greatly encourage a young woman to keep herself pure until the time that they got married. Because if she wasn't a virgin on their wedding night, then she would be forever subject to if her husband just wanted to get rid of her because he would have grounds to do so if there were no tokens of that virginity. And so here's what would happen. You would eliminate easy grounds for divorce, and you would greatly encourage sexual purity on behalf of the woman. And in those two things, you greatly solidify, again, the institution of marriage. In a society where divorce is easy, when you can just divorce for any grounds, when you drive down the highway and you see a sign that says, divorce, 300 bucks, no paperwork. And you could just get divorced in the drop of a dime and, and there's no, no, no grounds necessary, no, no you know, proof or anything else, but you could just get divorced. You want a divorce, you can divorce. Where divorce is easy in society and where sex is free, where there's no consequence or no expectation that I save myself until I'm married, here's what happens, is that the institution of marriage becomes cheapened. 
It's not worth anything anymore. Well, why do I need to get married? It's just a piece of paper, they say. And, and so I don't need to get married. And so now marriage is weakened. And now once it's weakened, it's only a matter of time before it's ultimately destroyed. There's no reason to do it except for a few traditional people that want to do a traditional thing, but there's no, there's no meaning behind it. It's not a covenant. It's not before God. It's not his, his uniting of two souls. See? And so God is into the preservation of marriage and family. And thus he gives them these laws. Very wise. Very wise of God to do that. Our society has turned many corners. Divorce is so easy. Sex is not sacred. It's not something to be saved for marriage. It's, hey, no, you need to experience things. You need to test drive the car before you buy it. We've heard it all. But what those things do is that they weaken the institutions that make society strong. And God would have society strong. So he gives them these words. Verse 22, all the way up through 30, further laws, the preservation of sexual integrity. He says, if a man be found lying with a woman who's married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shall you put away evil from Israel. That's how you would deal with an affair. If you people were found in adultery, you remember that when Jesus was in the temple, they brought to him the woman. It says that they caught her in the act of adultery. Jesus knew that that was a hoax because if it was true, then where was the man? The law said that they're both to die. See, and that was what it was. He says, if a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband, that means engaged, and a man find her in the city and lie with her. And the idea is that he, he rapes her, forces her. Then you shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and you shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city. If you were in the city in those days and you screamed, you would be heard. The layout of the houses, many of them didn't have windows. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a more temperate climate than what we're used to. And you, you were just, people were around you. And if she were to scream, she would be heard. And so if she didn't scream, then she would be accused. She was consenting to it, and therefore she would also die. And then it says, and the man, because he has humbled his neighbor's wife, notice that, that when they were engaged in the eyes of God, they were legally bound in marriage even though they hadn't consummated the the marriage yet and that's biblical throughout you know it says that joseph was espoused to mary they were engaged but god considered it that he would have had to write her a divorce if he was going to leave her you know so they wouldn't consummate it until the wedding but they were legally married at the point of betrothal you see he says he hobbled his neighbor's wife so shall you put away evil from among you But, verse 25, if a man find a betrothed damsel, an engaged woman, in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel you shall do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man rises against his neighbor and slayeth him, even so is this matter. In other words, she, she had no defense, there was no one to help her, and it, that she was taken advantage of, and so she is innocent in this thing. The man dies, she lives. You know that all the way up until 1977, rape was a capital crime in the United States of America. Until 1977, if you raped another person, you would die for that. It was a capital crime. 
crime. And then they decided that that was too harsh of a punishment. And, you know, I wish they could see into the future, you know. He says, for he found her in the field, and she was betrothed, and the damsel cried, and there was none to save her. Now, verse 28, if a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, so she's not engaged, a young woman, a virgin, not engaged, and he lay hold on her and lie with her, and they be found, they get caught, then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Because he hath humbled her, he may not put her away all his days. If you wanted to have premarital sex in those days, if you got caught, congratulations, you just bought yourself a wife, young man. A man shall not take his father's wife, nor discover his father's skirt. And so the chapter finishes off with the preservation of paternal honor. One of the commandments that God gave in the Ten Commandments is that you're to honor your father and your mother. And that was important to God. You're not to, he says, take his wife, that would be, by implication, your stepmother, and you're not to discover your father's skirt or his nakedness, which in the Bible is a symbol of his vulnerabilities. You're not to expose or slander your father. We have an excellent illustration of this with Ham and Noah. Remember the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it says that Noah was uncovered in his tent. And the Bible doesn't elaborate beyond that. But it says that Ham, basically, he uncovered it. He published it abroad and he said, look, look what dad's doing. Can you believe this? The man who built the ark. And it says that the other two brothers wouldn't look upon it, but they walked into the tent backwards and they covered up their father's nakedness. And it says that when Noah awoke from his wine, it says he knew what his younger son had done and he was cursed. He uncovered his father's nakedness. Reuben, the son of Jacob. If you recall from the story, Reuben seduced his father's concubine, Bilhah. And he had relations with her, which was an abomination. You weren't to do that. And Jacob found out about it, and it cost Reuben the the, the portion or the place of being the firstborn in his father's household. And so this was a serious thing in that society, and it's serious to God is that you're not to dishonor your father. That's what he says, your earthly father. Well, in chapter 23 now, he begins to talk about issues concerning the presence of the Lord among them. Under the old covenant, is this too intense? I mean, I feel like, is there the heat on in here? Because I'm sweating more than normal, you know? (laughs) Hey, this is God's word, you know. In the Old Covenant, if you wanted to meet with God, you would go to the temple. That was the place where people would go to meet with God. Now, depending on who you were, you could get closer or you would be kept further away, depending on who you were. And the closer you were allowed to get to God, so to speak, the more elite and exclusive the group would be. There was, first of all, the court of the Gentiles. And that was open to anyone. Anyone could come to the court of the Gentiles. You could come in and you could kind of take in the scene and catch a a hint of the flavor of what was going on there. That was open to all, the court of the Gentiles. After that, one step closer would be the court of the women. 
And, and that was where the women, and it was the furthest that the women were allowed to go in their approach unto God under the old covenant, under the law. After that would be called the inner court, also called the congregation of the Lord. And that would be the place where the Jewish men could go. If you met the qualifications that were laid forth in Scripture and you were a Jew, circumcised, and the whole you know, gamut of what was required, then you could come into the congregation of the Lord, and that's where the men would gather. Now, after that was a place, it was called the holy place. And into that, only the priests could go. You had to be a Levite, a descendant of Levi, and you had to be able to prove it. And if you could prove it, and if you were a priest, a Levite, you could go into the holy place there, where there would be the laver and where sacrifices would be made, the altar was there. But then there was one step further, it was called the Holy of Holies. And in order to go into the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God, the epicenter, the glory, the kabod, the weight of God's presence was, you had to be the high priest. And he could only go in once a year. And if there was any impurity, any sin in his life, or if the sacrifice, the blood that he was bringing in was at all tainted or defiled, then he would be struck dead immediately. It wasn't a highly coveted thing, although it was a prestigious honor to be the high priest, you know. But you could only go so far depending on who you were. And so the first eight verses of this chapter give to us some of the guidelines that were required of the men that would be allowed into the congregation of the Lord. So these are the men that are allowed to go into that inner court, you know, the congregation of the Lord. And so he gives us those qualifications, those standards under the law. Hey, isn't it glorious that we're in the new covenant? See, in the new covenant, in this thing, this faith that we have, there are no distinctions. When Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished to Telestai. The Bible says that the rocks tore and that the veil in the temple, the veil that was 18 inches thick and 50 feet wide that took 100 men to hang it, it was so heavy. It tells us that that veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the presence of God from the people, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. That the blood of Jesus Christ made it possible for all that would believe in him to come into the presence of God, to have intimacy with him, to be in the holy place without fear and without restriction, without barrier. That there no longer is distinction between male and female, between Jews and Gentiles, between those that are slaves and those that are free. But the Bible says that in Jesus Christ we are all one and we have access to God because of faith in his name. Isn't the new covenant glorious? But under the old, the rules were very strict. And so he gives us some of those here. He says in verse 1, he says, He that is, and, and, he, and, and this is the King James, it shines here. He says, He that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy members cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. And again, the idea is emasculation and, and the context is because of some kind of a pagan ritual. Now there were eunuchs. Daniel was a eunuch, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were accepted by God. They were used by God. It's not talking about that. It's talking about those who, under some pagan rite, were, were mutilated or emasculated in some way. And if they had done that, God didn't want that influence among his people. And so he said they are not to come in. They can be in the court of the Gentiles. They can be saved. They can be forgiven. But they can't come in to the congregation of the Lord. 
He says, an illegitimate child shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to his 10th generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Again, contextually speaking, most likely of the offspring of a temple prostitute. In the pagan practices of Canaan, where they were going, much of the worship revolved around sexual activity. And they would have temples and prostitutes and part of the worship of those false gods would be to hire these prostitutes and the result of it was that you'd have babies all all the time running around and god says those that are the offspring of that are not to come into the congregation even to the 10th generation that means not at all then in verse 3 he says an ammonite or a moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the lord even to their 10th generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the lord forever because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of egypt and because they hired against thee balaam the son of baor of pethor of mesopotamia to curse thee so because they restricted resisted them when god was moving them through because they hired balaam to curse them god didn't prosper their plans or their desire to harm israel he preserved israel but he says because of what they did no ammonite no moabite will be allowed into the congregation of the lord nevertheless verse 5 the lord thy god would not hearken unto balaam but the lord thy god turned the curse into a blessing unto thee because the lord thy god loved thee and you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all their days forever. So an Ammonite, a Moabite, not allowed into the congregation of the Lord. Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother. And you shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a stranger in his land. The children that are begotten of them shall enter into the congregation of the Lord in their third generation. Now the Edomites weren't nice to Israel either while they were traveling along in their journey. But God says, they're your brother. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, who was Jacob's brother. And so God says, the third generation, they're circumcised, they believe, they want to come in, let them in. They can come in. The same thing with an Egyptian. You were strangers in their land, they can have access in the third generation. And then laws concerning sanitation in battle. He says, and when the host goeth forth against thine enemies then keep thee from every wicked thing. That's a good thing to do. When you're in the battle, you don't want to be messing around with something that's going to cause God to turn against you. And if there be among you any man that is not clean by reason of uncleanness that chances him by night, that could be a lot of things, then shall he go abroad out of the camp. He shall not come within the camp. But it shall be when evening cometh on, he shall wash himself with water, And when the sun is down, he shall come into the camp again. You shall have a place place also without the camp, whither you shall go forth abroad, and you shall have a paddle or a shovel upon thy weapon, not a bayonet, this is a little different. And it shall be when you will ease yourself, relieve yourself abroad, you shall dig therewith, and you shall turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. For the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee and to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore shall thy camp be holy that he see no unclean thing in thee and turn away from thee. And so this is just plain practical. Look, you got to go to the bathroom. Please go outside the camp. That's what God is asking them. Take your shovel and go outside. 
The Lord walks amongst you in the midst of you. Now, perhaps you've heard the phrase before that cleanliness is next to godliness. How many, no, I don't want to embarrass anybody. Many people believe that that's in the Bible. The Bible says, the cleanly, no, no, the Bible does not say that cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible. However, God's not a slob either. And, and so this is just practical sanitation instruction that he gives to his people. He says, look, the Lord is among you. Keep the place clean. I think that's true of churches. God walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Hey, you're a part of the church. You see something, clean it. God walks in our midst. He goes on, verse 15, he says, You shall not deliver unto his master the servant which is escaped from his master unto thee. He shall dwell with thee even among you in that place which he shall choose in one of thy gates where it liketh him best. You shall not oppress him. Now, this is not talking about a Hebrew slave that escapes, but rather a foreign slave that escapes and seeks asylum in Israel. He says, you shall not oppress them. They're going to be free in your territory. They're allowed to stay. There shall be, verse 17, no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the hire of a whore, that means the money that is earned by a prostitute, or the price of a dog, and that's talking about a male prostitute, and that should help you understand uh, sometimes in the Bible when you read about a dog, that's what it's speaking of, is a male prostitute. In Revelation 22, when it says outside of the city are, you know, everything that makes and works a lie, thieves, it says dogs, sorcerers, and the rest, that's what it's talking about there. He says that you shall not bring the, 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 the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow, for even both these are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now, God's saying here, basically, he's saying, look, I didn't help you earn that money. You cannot give thanks and say, thank you for providing, Lord, for my needs through this thing that I have done and then bring a portion of it or bring all of it into the house of the Lord. God says, I didn't help you earn that money. Don't bring it into the house of the Lord. Don't bring that in here. He says, you shall not lend upon usury or with interest unto thy brother. Interest of money, interest of victuals, interest of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger you may lend upon usury with interest. But unto thy brother you shall not lend upon usury, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to in the land whither you go to possess it. Listen, don't charge interest to family. And that applies to Christian to your Christian brothers and sisters. Now, that's not to be exploited. You know, you get the idea that we're not under law. We have practical things that we go by. But God said to them that they weren't to charge interest to another Israelite. To a foreigner, yes. To Israelites, no. And when you shall vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, you shall not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, for it would be sin in thee. But if you shall forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. And that which is gone out of thy lips thou shalt keep and perform. Even a freewill offering, according as thou hast vowed unto the Lord thy God, which thou hast promised with thy mouth. Now, He's talking about vows here. When does a person make a vow to God? Usually when they want something or need something really bad. Lord, I promise you that if you will just get me out of this situation, or if you'll open this door, or if you'll let her say yes, 
or if I get the job, Lord, if, if you'll do this, then I will, and then we vow. I'll serve you with everything I've got, you know, and, and we make vows unto the Lord, usually when we do. Now, here's what God's saying. If you vow, keep your vow. If you make a promise to God that you're going to do something, keep the promise that you made to God. God holds you accountable for the things that you promised to God. But here's the good news. Here's the best way to keep a vow that I know. Don't make one. God says, don't make one. You don't have to make a vow. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. Nowhere does he say, make sure you pay for it or repay. Make sure that you promise that you'll give the offer. Don't, you don't have to do that. Just ask God. It says that it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He that withheld not his only son, but delivered him up for us all. How much more shall he not now freely give us all things, the Bible says. We don't need to vow to the Lord. And that's the best way to not get yourself into trouble. But if you make a vow, God says, keep your vow. Do the thing that you said you're going to do. And when you come into thy neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes thy fill at thine own pleasure, but you shall not put any in a vessel. If you walk through someone's vineyard, hey, have at it, but don't bring a basket. (laughs) Don't bring a barrel, a wheelbarrow, and start harvesting. If you want to glean grapes as you go, fine, but no harvesting. And when you come into your standing corn of your neighbor, then you may pluck the ears with thine own hand, but you shall not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. So we come to the end of chapter 23, and uh, we get through the R-rated portion uh, for now of the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll continue next week as we continue our study in Deuteronomy, and we'll take on from chapter 4 and move onwards. And the musicians can come. I think one of the things that we take the most for granted as Christians is the power, the privileges, and the glory of the new covenant that we've received. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 7, he said that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see the things which you see. And to hear the things that you heard. And they have not known them. And he was talking to us about the great privilege that we have as Christians. To have the access to God that we have. Jesus said of John the Baptist that there was never a greater prophet than John. That all that were before him, that he was the greatest. But then he said this, but he that is least in the kingdom of heaven. Speaking of that which was yet to be through the new covenant is greater than John. Because we have access to the Father. We don't have to bring a sacrifice and an offering. We don't have to work our way into the congregation of the Lord or into the Levi genes or into the high priesthood. We can come as easy as it is for us to close our eyes and turn our hearts towards heaven and we have instant, immediate access into the presence of the Lord, something that they never could even dream of in all that they might have had or all that they might have seen. It doesn't hold a candle to what it is that we've been given and to what we experience. And not only that, but we occupy, you and I, the highest position that it's possible for a human being to hold in all of the universe. 
Because it's not just that we have access to the Father, but the Bible says that we are in Christ. That we are one with him. We are in communion. We're unified, linked to Jesus, the Son. The highest order, the highest seat that you can occupy in heaven. It far exceeds any position that's held by an angel or by any principality or by any power in the heavenly realms or in the earthly or in the powers of hell. You and I have been given access into that by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we are the most blessed of all that exist in all the universe in this new covenant. Father, we just thank you so much tonight for this glorious privilege that we're called the sons and the daughters of the Most High God. We pray, Father, that you would open our understanding, that you would give us an awareness of all that is ours through Jesus Christ, that we might taste and see that you're gracious and good, that we might experience your kindness and the love that's been given to us through Jesus, our Lord, and that we might walk worthy of the calling that we've been given. We pray, Father, that you would fill us afresh with your spirit, even now. That you would dissolve all of our doubt, all of our fear. Everything, Lord, that would keep us back from entering in and enjoying all that you are. I pray that you would draw near to each one of us. That as we walk from this place tonight, we would experience your presence with us in a new way, in a powerful way, a living way. That as we lift up our voice and our hand towards heaven and pray that we would experience the connection that's been opened to us through the veil. That as we confess our sin to you, Jesus, the power of the blood would not only cleanse us from the power of that sin, but you'd wash away our guilt and the stain of it. And that you would help us, Lord, to enjoy and employ the full privileges that we have as your sons and daughters and those that are placed in Christ. So be with us, Lord. Apply these truths that we've heard tonight and cause us to walk with you, to know you, even as we've been known. And we give thanks to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.